0: Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick is joined by Kat Armas. Kat is a Cuban-American writer and podcaster from Miami, Florida, who holds a dual MDiv and MAT from Fuller Theological Seminary. Her first book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, explores the intersection of women, scripture, and Cuban identity. She also engages these topics on her podcast, The Protagonistas, which centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color in church leadership and theology.
1: Welcome, Kat. We are so excited that you joined us here at Alabaster Jar. Thank you.
2: No, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here and chat with you guys today.
1: Well, I'm really excited because your book, Abilita Faith, is really a, a wonderful, a wonderful blend of deep theological thinking and your own uh, personal story um, that really uh, kind of weaves back and forth as as we kind of see your journey unfold, uh, as well as engage with biblical with uh, biblical stories and biblical women. So mm. thank you so much for the book. And uh, I'd love to just dive right in. At the very beginning you, of the book, you talk about, uh, as you were doing your uh, studies in um, in your graduate work, uh, that you had research grief. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that is a, a fascinating diagnosis. And I think that's part of what led you on this journey. Can you talk a little bit about this research grief that you experienced?
2: Yeah, um, I remember as I was writing the book and I was trying to put words to my experiences, I thought, is this a thing? Like, this has to be a thing, you know? So I started just Googling and I actually found several blogs of folks just talking about um, how hard, you know, it was to dive into certain topics. and. And I felt like that was important to name, right? Um, You know, in so much of, I guess, Western education or even seminary education, um, we're sort of sometimes taught to um, separate ourselves from our work and, you know, look at it objectively or whatever. Um, And I realized I couldn't do that. And so that was sort of a catalyst moment for me um, when I was experiencing so much um, grief, uh, particularly as I was studying my own people and how that intersected with colonization and Christianity and so many you know things that are very important as we sort of wrestle with our faith and wrestle with our theology. Um, so that was a uh, very, yeah, just one of those moments for me. Um, I like to say I was actually speaking with my spouse this morning about this and you know how in, in scripture we see so much of someone will, will have like a sacred moment and they don't know it's sacred. And then they look back and they're like, Oh, I think God was here. I'm going to build an altar. You know, yes. I love yes. those moments. Um, and I feel like that was sort of a weird sacred, um, maybe not in, in a, you know, positive or, you know, way. But it was one of those moments where I'm like, I think I need to build an altar there and remember this um, because it was, you know, one of those moments. So yeah, so um, sort of discovering research grief as I was, I was in a women in church history class and, you know, studying about all these incredible women, obviously throughout history who have done so much uh, for the Christian faith, but have been, uh, you know, overlooked in many ways or um, were silenced, you know, deliberately or for whatever reason, um, and then I just thought, well, what about Cuban women? You know, <laughs> like, what about the women that I come from? Like, what? You know, and so I just went all the way back to the beginning, right? To where Christianity, as we know it, was introduced to, um, you know, my people, quote unquote, um, which were the Taino indigenous people of Cuba. And, you know, it was I, I as opening Miguel de la Torre's book on, on this and he's Cuban. And so he writes on Cuban history. And, you know, like, as I mentioned in my book, the first line was, you know, women were raped and men were, you know, children were disemboweled. And it was just one of those things like, oh my goodness, like here I was like naively like, oh, I'm so excited to look into my history. Um, And of course I had heard of these things, but I think it was, you know the first time where i thought no wait a minute this is very personal um very very personal and so so yeah that was a, a like i said just a very important moment for me and from there you know i just began to unravel a lot of these things and of course it wasn't the first time it would happen i mean this would happen years before um and just with women and theology in general or um with different things um you know whether it was just race in general or you know kind of learning about the history of of christianity and how it intersects with our country um with with the U S but yeah. So that was um, a moment where it just became very, very personal and it wasn't just a general history, but it was mine. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, maybe I resonated with it in part because I kind of felt like I had something similar when I started graduate school. One of my first classes was a class feminism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, uh, took the train, uh, Uh, into my classes, and I got real early in the morning, a 6 a.m. train, and I'm sitting on the train, and I'm doing my devotions. Um, Mm. I'm in my mid-20s, I guess, and evangelical Christian, even evangelical church, and opening my Bible, begin to read, and there are all these male pronouns over Mm. and over and over again, the male uh, uh, pronouns, the generic male. And it just struck me. I thought and I started to cry, Mm. you know, not sob everywhere, but (laughs) just tears (laughs) running down my face as I was looking out the window as the scenery went by. Lord, am I anywhere in this text, you know? And yeah, there was a real sense of grief as I begin to study women and Christianity in a in an academic sense, but also as you say, it's a you bring yourself there, and men right. do too. It's just that it was never talked about in quite right. that in quite that way. So you want to develop your theology, and you talk about this journey that you're on in developing your theology, which focuses on uh, marginalized women and and their need for moral agency. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how that unfolded, and 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 what your what your theology is, or what what are some of the conclusions you've reached? Yeah, um,
2: well, I think that sort of um, as I was listening right now to what you, to what you were sharing, it made me think of you know when I was at my first seminary, which was not um, you know very welcoming for women or very you know it wasn't a place where I felt like I could grow much or flourish much. Um, and I had you know similar moments where you know I'm sitting there and um, I'm in a place where there's nobody that is from my culture or you know from my sort of community, and I'm listening to the Bible being taught obviously from a male lens. Um, But from a very Southern, you know, like my professors were from like rural Mississippi and, you know, which is fine. But I had a lot of those moments where I thought, what does this have to do with me, right? Like, what Mm -hmm. does this have to do with my upbringing and my background? And, you know, so many of the women um, who, who shaped and formed me, you know, I was raised by a single mother and a single grandmother. And I had so many single women in my life who, you know, were just doing their part in raising me. Um, I talk about one toward the end of my book that she was just a poor, you know, immigrant woman, and and she lived in little Havana, and I loved spending time with her, and and I loved seeing God through her eyes because it was so different, right, um, than what I would later be taught would be, you know, yeah. faith or Christianity That's or right. spirituality. Um, but yeah, so, so many of these experiences, you know, I'm being raised by, by so many um, women who, who would not be considered theologians, who would not be considered, you know, who not even be looked at or could their, their theology or their spirituality be, um, you know, considered, I guess is the best word to yeah. say. And, um, and yeah, so I'm sitting there in seminary and, and, And I just thought, what is this? This has nothing to do with me. And I remember one night just taking a walk around campus and thinking, what am I doing here, God? Like, Mm -hmm. why am I here? You know, Um, and that's sort of where I began to start, you know, wrestling with with this. And and what is my grandmother's faith faith and, you know, Abuela's faith that was so uh, rooted in survival. Right. It was Mm -hmm. just she was just trying to survive, you know. And it wasn't lofty and it wasn't, you know, it was complicated, but not in the sense that we think is complicated. She wasn't wrestling with the cre- with the questions that so many other people wrestle with. She was wrestling with, with things that had to do with survival. And I think that that, um, as I began to look at scripture, you know, sort of with this lens, I began to notice that that is most women in scripture, right? They're just trying to survive. You know, like we love the story of Ruth and Naomi because it's so sweet and there's so many things that we get from it. But at the end of the day, she said, hey, go to where, you know, he is, go to where Boaz is and do whatever you need to do because we need to secure our future, right? It's just, it's survival. Um, And so uh, that was very... yeah illuminating for me and sort of developing this this theology of just you know i i have a chapter in my book called sobreviviendo you know of just of just surviving and and of how women you know use their sexuality in their bodies because that's all that's available to them right that's that's how that they can enact their agency through their sexuality through and so as i'm i'm realizing all of this and and not necessarily realizing it but i'm just kind of connecting all these dots with my upbringing and connecting all these dots with so many women that i know and in the Bible, and I'm realizing that, man, God is present in these moments and in these stories, and God calls, you know, these women blessed, and so many of these stories had they been, or, you know, if they are stories in our current day, you know, they wouldn't be, people wouldn't consider them, you know, godly or blessed or whatever you want to call it, um, because they are stories of survival, they are stories of women using their sexuality um, to ensure you know, to enact their agency and ensure that they can eat the next day, right? Yes, um, yes. Like you
1: you have great. this great line. And and you're gonna I, I apologize that uh, I can barely speak English, let alone uh, <laughs> oh, no, Spanish. So I love listening to,
2: to people. <laughs> <laughs> for, yeah. Who <laughs> don't mis- speak mispronounce
1: Spanish. your well, you're very gracious. <laughs> so the muharista? Mm-hmm. Uh, theology is a theology of resistance that aims to help Latinas discover and affirm the presence of God in their communities, as well as the revelation of God in their daily lives. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's so you're so wise to bring out the. Uh, the piece about, or to me, it, it just reshapes what I think about the words theology itself. Right, right, right. That that it is, it, theology can technically kind of mean the study of God. But what you're what you're saying really here is the presence of God. That that's right. what theology grew to mean uh, mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. And that that yeah. So you go into oh number of stories that are so rich in the biblical text. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Hebrew midwives and what, uh, how they represented this theology of the presence of God?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the story, I, I love the story of Moses for so many reasons, but I think what I love so much about it is how women were just like, catalyst to everything, you know, um, they were, I mean, literally, if it wasn't for a number of women in the story of Moses, I mean, we wouldn't have the story of Moses. So um, I love, you know, the midwives Jokobah, or excuse me, uh, Shippor and Pua Jokobah is Moses' mother. But um, I just love just how complicated it all is. I love, um, you know, again, it, it was about survival, not necessarily for them, but for their community um, or for the people in the community um and i love i i mentioned a little bit about midwifery or the midwives because um just when we you know talking about agency i mean midwives in the ancient in ancient israel were like spiritual teachers and healers and you know they performed these sort of spiritual acts and and um it was more than just right i mean which is not just i mean delivering a child and ensuring its safety but There was so much involved with that. And so I love that, um, you know, as I'm discovering this and I'm learning about midwives in ancient Israel and how it was just this beautiful spiritual thing. And so their entire, um, you know, everything that they were doing in that moment, um, not just, you know, ensuring that that this baby or these babies, these boys um, are, are, you know, ensuring their futures. Um, but they're engaging in civil disobedience and they're also engaging in acts of spiritual, um, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, yeah, I loved that was, you know, it's one of my favorite stories um, because there is so much of embodied knowledge and embodied wisdom um, in, in their um Yeah. In their lives and in their stories. And there's also, again, this notion of um, securing futures and just, you know, doing what you need to do um, to survive. And like I mentioned, you know, whether it's disobeying Pharaoh or hiding or lying or whatever it is, you know, and they're called blessed for it. Right. Um, So I I feel like that's such a good holistic story of what we find. (laughs)
1: Right, right. And you mentioned uh, Jochebed, uh, Moses' mother, same mm. same thing. Um, how how does that, I mean, just as you're describing these heroines of the faith, and they are being, uh, they're not obeying the government. Right. <laughs> you know, they certainly are not doing that. They're not following Pharaoh's rules. Um, and um, And they're, yeah, they're so proactive for their people right. and their God. How does that differ in your experience? How does that differ from how young women are raised today in uh, in the churches? Right. Are yeah. we raising our daughters to be these kind of brave midwives?
2: Right. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe sometimes Um but yeah, and I think that that's what makes it feel so revolutionary, you know? Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's the midwives. And it's, again, so many of the women in scripture, how um, they are brave and courageous and engaging in things that we wouldn't necessarily teach our daughters to do. Um, and I think that that is what um, is so unique when you look at it through the lens of whether it's Mujerista theology or marginalized, you know, the lens of marginalization um, because of this notion of, well, I need to do what I need to do, right? Um, I need to do this so that my family, like I mentioned, you know, a bunch of times can eat or can, you know, have a place to lay their heads or any of these things. And I think that that, um, you know, God, God is like, I mentioned God is there, but God um, blesses that and God um, is for that. And God, you know,
1: what well, he... support- Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I can kind of imagine him saying, you know, I gave you two arms and two legs and a brain to think with, you know, so, (laughs) so, you know, I mean, just, just act on that. And they were doing the right thing. They were doing the deeply right thing, which is saving the life, the life of this little baby boy, Moses, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of the baby boys, right? right? Uh, not just Moses. And, and they so they were doing the deeply right thing, right. which was deeply honoring honoring to God. They weren't necessarily doing the safe thing. Right. And right. I think that that's uh, everyone's temptation today, man or yeah. woman, It's to do the safe thing and then kind of rationalize after that. And it didn't feel like they were trying to, kind of make a statement, virtue signaling kind of exactly, stuff like yeah. we have today. There's another woman that does a very brave thing. You talk about her. It's not a woman we spend much time with, uh, at least I have not, uh, Rizpah. Oh, She's yeah. in uh, Samuel, right? Is that Second Samuel? Second
2: Samuel. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that story and how that, how her story resonated so much with you.
2: Yeah, um, I love her story, particularly because it is an overlooked one, I think, in many ways. I hadn't heard much about Ritzpah, you know, in my seminary career or whatever it was. I hadn't studied her much, Um, but I I think what fascinated me the most um, with her story was how it changed the course of, literally, history, how it changed, um, you know, the situation that was the dire situation at hand. So, Um, So yeah, she's a concubine of Saul and there's some, you know, stuff going on. There's a famine. And so David asks God, like, why is there a famine? Um, So Saul had, you know, there was some stuff that had happened with the Gibeonites and some injustices. And so, you know, blood needed, blood needed to be shed in order to avenge the unjust murders or the unjust death. So David's like, all right, yeah, just go kill, you know, kill these people, kill Saul's sons, which were Rizpah's uh, sons. And you know, of course we know there was, there needed to be proper burial practices and all these things that weren't done. Um, So Rispa, I mean, she just puts her body and and she uses, what I love is that she uses her body as protest and she puts her body on, you know, she, she sits there for six months protesting, essentially the unjust murder or, or unjust burial practices as well of her, of her dead sons. Um, and just that image of of Rispa, you know, um, fighting off the, you know, literally scripture says that there was wild animals and she was fighting off the wild animals. And that was so um, just kind of like just putting myself in that situation of, oh, my goodness, like this is a, a vision of a mother, you know, again, survival, desperation, you know, all of these things um, and just putting her body, you know, on the line as protest and what happens is that you know david notices and he writes some wrongs and then rain comes and i thought that that was the most fascinating thing for me that god literally sent rain you know and it wasn't it was after you know like injustice was made right or you know injustice was made right like things were made right and so that to me was so fascinating how, you know, this overlooked character who, you know, it's just, it's a quick little story that, you know, maybe we kind of zip through in 2 Samuel, but no, you know, there's so much there. It's, so, it's such a weighty story. It's about a woman, again, who putting her her body on the line, her life on the line, of desperation and survival, and all these themes that encapsulate so much of what we read in scripture. And we see it in her story and we see how it changed the course of history, you know? That's um, right.
1: Complete. That's right, so. absolutely. And, and yes, she's doing it out of a mother's devotion for her right. sons, but she also recognizes that there is a larger societal question right. uh, that needs resolved. If it is okay to leave these bodies to decay, what's next? Right. right. And so, yeah, to have that, again, that deep, uh, profound yeah. understanding of, of, of
2: what's right. What, of
1: what's right. Yes. Exactly. So let yeah. me ask you about one more woman and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes. Uh, you were raised. You talk about in your book. You were raised Roman Catholic, um, and then later shifted to uh, Protestantism. Um, so you've you've seen Mary, the mother of Jesus, perhaps from a couple of different right. uh, angles. Um, and yeah, talk to me a little bit about how Mary helps with our understanding of moral agency.
2: Yeah. So Mary is an interesting character for me because as you mentioned, you know, I've seen her in so many different angles. Um, and something that I wrestle with in my book is how she is used as sort of a symbol of um, your, you know, your your virgin and your, you know, like a symbol of motherhood and a symbol. And in many ways in, in Catholicism, it's like the idea, she's upheld as the ideal woman and you need to, you know, be like Mary, right? And submit the way that she submit submitted, you know, to, God being in her and like all these things, um, which are good things. They're not all necessarily bad things, but, um, but then also uh, on the other hand, you know, um, she, people just want to avoid her, um, because of, you know, this Mariology or this, you know, whatever. Um, so I sort of just wrestle with that, um, and how, you know, Mary sort of is a little bit of all of us, you know, like that complicated, um, yeah, that complicated character, but, I just love that that when you really look at, you know, sort of the agency that Mary had, the like it was her choice to say yes, and it was her choice, you know. Um, and during this time, I mean, we hear so much about how wonderful Joseph was because he didn't divorce her, you know, all these things, but but how much was on her, right? Um, and so, you know, as I wrestled with her and as I wrestled with, you know, Mary is all of us and Mary is complicated as we all are, um, but wow, you know, the responsibility that Mary was given and the yes that Mary gave. And there's so much that we can learn from her and glean um, from her uh, story and from her example. And um, and yeah, so that's something she she's just been such an interesting, you know, her her sort of her social justice, you know, proclamation. Um when she, you know, when she finds out she's pregnant with, you know, Jesus and yeah, so there's just so much about her. And I love that her, you know, her focus on justice, and it's not just about her and what she's carrying, but what this will mean for the world and for the future. Um, Yes. Yeah.
1: And, and it unfolds in, in ways she hadn't anticipated. She does always hold to her faith, but she ponders and and this sword will pierce her side. Right. And she ponders that she, uh, you know, we, we may think that Jesus, as a sinless human being, was easy to raise,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: right. uh, I, and, and I'm sure in many ways that was the case, but what Scripture tells us is that she pondered things, right? right? Yeah. And that's yeah. because of, of how this victory and social justice was accomplished through the cross. Yes, and yeah. and that was a surprise to everyone, right. including Mary. But I, I, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, you're right. She's kind of can become symbols right. of what humans want, a uh, human agenda. But right. When you stick with what is in Scripture, she becomes an incredible model of discipleship overall. Right. right. And yeah. as as we're coming to uh, to the close of our conversation, before we, uh. Before we have to, yeah, before we leave, um, I didn't want to um, leave out what I think is an amazing, uh, another amazing part of your book, which is a conversation on hospitality. Mm -hmm. Um, And because hospitality can, uh, can often be, in my estimation, can often be sort of code for uh, women should stay in the kitchen, but now we're right. going to call it something else to make it sound sort of like a spiritual gift, but really all we want right. is for you to continue to work in the kitchen. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounds a little jaded and I apologize no. to our listeners. <laughs> but, no. um, uh, but anyway, you know, there's, uh, there's so much uh, wonderful things written on hospitality. And, and often from a perspective of you being the host, Mm-hmm. What you do, which I love, is you talk about hospitality, inviting us to be guests. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of unpack that for us a little bit, please?
2: Yeah. Um, so I know that, you know, the word decolonize become a buzzword. Um, <laughs> but when I think of, you know, this idea of of decolonizing, you know, whatever that means uh, to you in that moment of what you want to, excuse me, what you want to look at. Um, I feel like, you know, as I was wrestling with this, I thought, you know, My my grandmother, right, abuela, she was always setting tables, and they were her tables, and you know she got to say what we were eating, and she got to you know, and there was something about just being a guest at her table and being invited to sit at her table, you know. And I think about you know as I continued on in in my in my theological education, and yes, as you mentioned, getting you know so we hear so much about hospitality and how we need to you know have guests and we how we need to serve and all these things, but I think there takes, you know, a humility and a vulnerability to be a guest, right? There takes a humility, a vulnerability, and also just a, a, a relinquishing of power, you know, particularly for privileged people. You know, it, it takes a lot, I mean, it to sit at someone's table and... Eat what they have to offer you and you know sort of just receive um, and so that was very big for me as I was wrestling you know with my upbringing and as I was wrestling with someone who you know is educated and is privileged right and and so how do I sort of navigate this as someone who um, who wants to engage in the beautiful gift of hospitality um, but also needs to relinquish my power in, in certain ways right? Um, also needs to be vulnerable and um, be humble. And that is by being a guest. And so I sort of call that like a decolonized notion of hospitality. Um, you know, as Christians, when we think of colonization, we do think of, you know, those with power and privilege going to certain spaces and demanding, I think, I, you know, I talk about this in my book, but demanding that they sit at your table in the name of Jesus, right? Like, here we built this table. Now leave your table and come sit at mine. In the name of Jesus, in the name of love, right? But then I ask: like, Is it really loving when you demand someone to leave the table that they've set in, in order so that they so that they can sit at yours? And and I don't think that's very loving. I think that there obviously needs to be you know a reciprocal relationship, um, and and yeah, and there needs to be some humility and vulnerability in sitting at someone else's table.
1: Yeah, that's that's so powerful. I think that thread of uh invitation to walk with the other who has a different experience than you uh, but walk side by side that right. that's kind of the picture I felt um that was that was kind of their uh, shadow sh- overshadowing the whole of the book just an invitation uh, to think deeply about your own um your your own background and another mm. person's background, and 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 walking together in it, mm. uh, right. yeah, and in this in this journey,
0: right, <laughs> in this journey <laughs>
1: that calls for um, moral agency right. that invites us uh, to do the the deeply right things of God, right. and yeah, uh, and it's
2: complicated, right? Mm-hmm, it's complex, and yes. that's something that I wanted. To really just lean into um, that there isn't always an easy answer you know kind of like you mentioned we do want to do the easy thing but um, no you know it's complicated and sometimes we just have to sit in that complexity and just allow it to be what it is and I think that that's something that you know, I've just keep leaning into more and more as I wrestle with scripture, because it is complicated and there isn't always an easy answer. You know, we like to, you know, throw out these platitudes of, oh, well, you know, Jesus still is good. You know, God is still good. And yes, God is still good. But that's not the question we're wrestling with. You know, we're wrestling with the real life situations and um, survival, right? As I keep mentioning and just living in this complicated life. And yeah, um, I think it is, there is something about um, allowing that to be what it is, but being in that together, right?
1: Yes, yes. Oh, Kat, I so appreciate our conversation. Thank you yes, so me much. Too. And Thank you. and oh, yes, and your book, Abolita Faith: What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. Yes. Each one of those uh, nouns, wisdom, persistence, and strength just shines in your book. It was a wonderful blessing for me to read. And uh, uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, this is your first book. Is that right? Yes. So yes, we'll look best forward best. to the others that are, <laughs> yes. that are coming. It'll thank be exciting you. It means so much see.
2: to me that you would read and engage with it. And yes, thank you so much.
0: Well, I know you'll be a blessing to our listeners as well. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to pick up Kat's book, to Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength from Brazos Press. And you can follow along with what Kat's up to on her website, catarmis.com. We'll be right back here again next week for another great conversation. So be sure to join us.